Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is an RNZ podcast. In 1642, a group of Ngāti Tūmata Kōkiri saw something no Māori had ever seen before. Sitting off the coast of their home in what's now called Golden Bay were a pair of giant, triple-masted sailing ships. To Māori, these ships must have seemed bizarre. And the people on board looked pretty weird too. Pale skins, strange clothes, and completely new technology. What happened next is, well, let's just say that Māori-European relations did not get off to a great start. I'm Lee Madam McLaughlin. And I'm William Ray. Welcome to the Aotearoa History Show. We range ourselves without fear beside Britain. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. The New Zealander Hillary has succeeded in conquering Mount Everest. Last episode, we talked about the evolution of Māori culture in Aotearoa. 400 years worth of cultural and technological revolution. Over those same 400 years, Europeans were going through their own revolutions. There were wars and plagues and political turmoil. But alongside that came a burst of technological and scientific innovation, a flowering of art, architecture and philosophy. Through these centuries, we saw the Christian Reformation, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. A complex combination of these historical forces kicked off an age of European exploration. Eventually, this led to the first truly global trade in ideas and goods, but it often went hand in hand with the colonisation, exploitation and oppression of non-Europeans. By the time Abel Tasman turned up in Aotearoa, the colonisation of the American continent was well underway and the Atlantic slave trade had been running for more than 100 years. But the Māori who saw Tasman's ships arriving on their coastline didn't know about any of this. We should say all we have to go on for this encounter is Tasman's diary because no oral traditions of this meeting have survived from the Māori side. So, according to Tasman, two waka full of Ngāti Tūmata Kōkiri warriors paddled out to challenge the intruders. They chanted and blew on putatara, which are trumpets made from conch shells. This was standard protocol for greeting strangers. Make yourself look as threatening as possible and challenge the newcomers to fight so that they don't assume you're an easy target. 
According to local norms, those newcomers were supposed to respond with a series of ritual greetings to establish they came in peace. But Tasman's crew had their own norms and responded by sounding their own trumpets, then firing a blast of fire and smoke from a cannon. The Dutch explorers intended this as a friendly greeting. They brought their ships closer to the shore, hoping they could trade with Māori for supplies. But in the minds of Ngāti Tūmata Kōkiri, the signs were obvious. The strangers had accepted their challenge. The next step was war. The next day, another waka filled with Ngāti Tūmata Kōkiri warriors attacked a small boat which was ferrying people between the two sailing ships, killing four men. Then they sent out a fleet of waka to press their attack. But the Dutch had powers Ngāti Tūmata Kōkiri had never seen. Here's how Tasman described what happened. Eleven canoes swarming with men came towards us. We kept quiet until some of the first were within shot, and we fired one or two shots from the gunner's room, but without effect. The Zihain fired too, and hit in the largest canoe one man who stood with a white flag in his hand so that he fell down. The waka quickly rowed back to shore, and Tasman's ship sailed away. This was the first meeting between Māori and Europeans. Not exactly the best start, but we have to remember how alien these two cultures were. Māori had no frame of reference for people outside of New Zealand. It was hard to imagine people who didn't understand the nuances of ceremonial warnings and peaceful greetings. In that context, you can sort of understand why Ngāti Tūmata Kōkiri responded to the Dutch with violence. Yeah. Abel Tasman didn't stay in Aotearoa long. He sailed along the west coast of the North Island and traced a ragged line on his map. But he didn't know if what he'd found was an island or the edge of a giant continent. Later, a famous mapmaker gave a label to that line of coast, Nova Zealandia, a.k.a. New Zealand. This first encounter seems like a really big deal from today's perspective, because eventually, of course, Aotearoa was colonised by Europeans. But really, Tasman's visit didn't have any serious impact on Māori or Europeans. He didn't leave behind any introduced animals or tools, he only interacted with one small group of Māori, and he didn't stick around long enough for those Māori to learn anything about the European world. It was more than a hundred years before Māori saw another European. And this was a totally different story to Tasman. On October 6th, 1769, British Navy Lieutenant James Cook arrived in Aotearoa aboard his ship, the HMS Endeavour. Cook's official mission was scientific. His job was to explore the Pacific and make observations of the transit of Venus. This was all part of a project to work out the distance from the Earth to the Sun. But he had another secret mission. Many Europeans thought there must be a giant continent in the Southern Hemisphere to balance out all the land in the North. You can even see this imaginary continent marked on old maps as Terra Australis Incognita, the unknown southern land. Cook's orders were to discover this unknown land and try to claim at least part of it for Great Britain. Here's what they said. 
You are with the consent of the natives to take possession of convenient situations in the country in the name of the King of Great Britain. Or if you find the country uninhabited, take possession for His Majesty. Cook made three voyages into the Pacific. He never managed to find the great southern continent because, well, it didn't exist. Instead, he spent his time charting the coasts of Aotearoa, and even today, those maps look uncannily accurate. On his first voyage, Cook recruited a Tahitian chief called Tupaya as an expert navigator. Tupaya could speak to Māori in their own language, so he was often able to negotiate peacefully with Tangata Wenua. He helped organise trading and allowed Cook and his crew to better understand Māori culture. But that doesn't mean that Cook's interactions with Māori were always peaceful. The logbooks and diaries of his expeditions describe several violent incidents with Māori people in Aotearoa, including some fatal shootings. Cook and his crew perceived some of these shootings as self-defence because they thought Māori were acting aggressively towards them. Of course, from a Māori perspective, the endeavour started the aggression by invading their territory, so they were the ones acting in self-defence. And some of the shootings actually didn't have anything to do with self-defence. Sometimes Cook's crew shot at Māori because they thought they were stealing from them or because they wanted Māori to stop rowing their waka away from the ship. Towards the end of Cook's first voyage to New Zealand, he walked up to the top of a hill in Queen Charlotte's Sound, raised the Union Jack and claimed possession of the surrounding area for Great Britain. At the end of his first and second voyages, Cook also wrote reports with details of New Zealand's natural resources. Huge trees which would make good timber to repair ships, flax for making ropes, lots of whales and seals around the coast. These were the first steps towards British colonisation of Aotearoa. James Cook's third trip to New Zealand was his last. He was killed in Hawaii after his crew got into a dispute with local indigenous people. But he left a lasting impact on Aotearoa. He introduced animals like pigs and ship rats, plants like the potato, and his sailors introduced diseases like tuberculosis, gonorrhea and syphilis. If that was the last interaction Māori had with Europeans, it would still have been an enormous change. Pigs and potatoes became major sources of kai for Māori. Plus, Māori had no immunity to the new European diseases. While the likes of cholera and malaria never arrived and smallpox and plague were rare, those diseases that were imported hit hard. The sexually transmitted infections caused infertility and stillbirth, while influenza and measles killed in large numbers. This all contributed to a massive reduction in the Māori population over the next few decades. But this was only the beginning of Māori-European interactions. The next major wave of visitors began in the 1810s. At first, these were whalers and sealers who set up bases along the coast, trading with Māori for supplies and sometimes offering them work aboard their ships. 
then the British set up prison colonies in Australia. And from the 1820s, there was a steady stream of ships carrying potatoes and pork from Hapu in the Bay of Islands to hungry settlers in New South Wales. In return for food, Māori got lots of cool stuff like metal tools and cotton clothing, and also lots of less cool stuff like tobacco, alcohol and muskets. The introduction of muskets helped trigger the most devastating series of conflicts in New Zealand's history, the Musket Wars. Traditionally, Māori warfare was widespread but small-scale. The fighting was hand-to-hand, using weapons like mire, patu and taiaha. Battles usually involved a few hundred warriors on either side at most, and often ended without many people being killed. The musket wars were very different. They began with the famous Ngāpui rangatira Hongihika. Hongihika was a skilled diplomat and an astute tactician, and he had the ambition to settle old scores with new technology. He bought hundreds of muskets from European traders and led thousands of warriors in raids against his enemies. They inflicted a level of death and destruction never seen before in Aotearoa. The tribes Hongihika attacked responded by buying their own muskets. Then they turned their guns on tribes further south who were still using traditional weapons. But before we get too worked up about muskets, let's acknowledge another big contributor to the musket wars. The potato. Your average spud is the original superfood. It's super easy to grow and store, and it's jam-packed with carbohydrates and micronutrients. When potatoes were brought to Europe from South America in the 1500s, they ended famines all across the continent and contributed to skyrocketing populations. In Aotearoa, Māori were quick to replace kumara with potatoes as their staple crop. Kumara might be delicious, but they're tricky to grow in our climate, and they rot quickly unless they're stored very carefully. Growing potatoes meant Māori could feed a lot more warriors, and those warriors could fight for a lot longer without running out of food. In fact, potatoes were so important to Māori warfare that some historians have suggested renaming the musket wars as the Potato Wars. Whatever you call them, these wars were devastating, and they spread all over Aotearoa. Ngāti Tua travelled south from Kapuya and made war on the tribes around Kapiti, Wellington and parts of the South Island. Ngāti Tama and Ngāti Mutunga used a European ship to sail all the way from Wellington to the Chatham Islands where they conquered and enslaved the peaceful Moriori people who had settled there hundreds of years earlier. The wars only ended in the late 1830s, once all Māori had access to guns and there were no more easy victories to be had. By then, a combination of these wars and introduced diseases had killed somewhere between 10 and 30% of the Māori population. The wars redrew boundaries of tribal authority and created all kinds of new alliances and feuds. It's hard to overemphasise how disruptive these wars were for Māori, and part of that disruption involved a much closer relationship with Europeans. Māori often encouraged Europeans to live among them to help them buy muskets, Sometimes these people were escaped convicts from Australia or sailors who jumped ship to live among Māori. Sometimes they were missionaries. Oh, 
missionaries had come to Aotearoa to civilise Māori by converting them to Christianity. Most Northland Rangatira refused to convert to Christianity, but Māori were very keen to learn reading and writing from missionaries, so they still encouraged missionaries to live with them. Hongihika and another Ngāpuhi Rangatira called Waikato travelled all the way to the UK to help develop a Māori alphabet and the first written dictionary of Te Reo Māori. But there was another reason many Northland Rangatira wanted missionaries to live among them. They sometimes acted as useful intermediaries to help buy muskets. Some of the missionaries were pretty uneasy about this, particularly when they saw the enormous death tolls those guns were inflicting. So while some missionaries participated in the musket trade, some also worked to stop the bloodshed. And they were at least partly successful. The Christian message of forgiveness offered Māori a way to avoid the demands of utu without diminishing their mana. As missionaries gained status among Māori, they could be used as neutral intermediaries to organise peace deals. But missionaries also did long-lasting damage to traditional Māori culture, which they often described as barbaric or sinful. Missionaries defaced Māori artwork. They chopped the genitals off carvings and preached against the practice of tāmoko. Some modern Māori activists and academics like Professor Ngāhuia Tawe Kōtuku think Māori were also totally accepting of takatāpui, that's an umbrella term for lesbian, gay, trans and non-binary people, until the missionaries stepped in. The missionaries kicked off a long history of suppression of Māori culture, which has only started to be reversed in recent times. But in the early 1800s, the power of Europeans in Aotearoa was still very limited – In 1840, Māori outnumbered Pākehā by 40 to 1. Rangatira were the ones making the decisions about where Pākehā could live, who they traded with, how they should behave. And after the musket wars ended, Māori society started to bounce back. Trade got more and more profitable, and by the 1840s and 50s, those profits were being reinvested into new technologies like iron ploughs and mills for grinding flour. Some Māori even bought shares in European ships so that they could make even more profit from trade. Meanwhile, some Pākehā were settling down in Māori villages and living according to tikanga Māori. You could see a future where Māori were able to harness European technology on their own terms. A future where Europeans who came to New Zealand integrated into the Māori way of life. But that's not how New Zealand's history played out. Over the next 60 years... Europeans would come to dominate Aotearoa and Māori would be forced to integrate into their culture. What started as a partnership would soon become a colony. In the next episode, we'll see how that process began. The Aotearoa History Show is a 14-part series made possible by the RNZ New Zealand On Air Digital Innovation Fund. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. It's written and produced by William Ray and co-presented by Lee Marama McLaughlin. The sound engineer is William Saunders and it is directed by Duncan Smith. Historical fact-checking by Basil Keane and the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, especially David Green. Archival audio from Ngā Taonga Sound and Vision... A video version of the Aotearoa History Show is available online via the RNZ webpage or on YouTube. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.